This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to begin to read... From verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It was a Wednesday. It was Wednesday, the 31st of October, 1517. In northern Germany, it was autumn. And it was a good time to be alive. It was a good time to be a German. It was a good time particularly to be a rural German. Yes, there was politics. Yes, there were issues. But generally, things were good. It was the end of the summer. The harvest had been not too bad. Wittenberg on the banks of the River Elbe, it gets its name because of those white chalk cliffs in the area. Chalk, not great for agriculture, but it had been okay. The harvest, not too bad. It was a good time to be a German. It was the 31st of October. The next day, 1st of November, was All Saints Day. And what a glorious time that was going to be. You see, on All Saints Day, that was the one day of the year when the man who ruled that town, Frederick the Wise, he would open up the doors to his treasure house and let the public come in to look at all the relics that he had. Now, you probably don't know what a relic is, do you? It's something which they set aside from history so you can look back on it and remember And he had a vast collection of relics. And from all around that area of Saxony, people were starting to come to Wittenberg that morning, ready for the next day to see those relics. I mean, who wouldn't come? Who wouldn't pay good money to see the mummified mummified thumb of Jesus' grandmother? It's true. It was just one of some hundreds of relics that Frederick the Wise had in the castle in Wittenberg. It's a good day to be a German. The plague had passed. Everything was pretty good in the town. People had only just really got over the excitement a few decades before of that crazy Italian Columbus who'd sailed across to some strange new world. Not that it affected the people in Germany. They were just happy doing their own thing. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Nobody particularly necessarily noticed that lean, scrawny, not terribly well-kept little monk, as he walked about a kilometer from the monastery on the one side of town through to the castle church on the other side, carrying a large piece of paper and a hammer. Nobody really thought, what on earth is he doing? His name was Martin Luther. And as he walked up from the monastery to the castle church, he came to the door of the church and nailed this piece of paper onto the door. 31st of October, 1517, 500 years ago this week, he nailed what had become to be known as his 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Now, if you're like me, you hear the word thesis and think of a ridiculously big book that somebody who thinks they're clever, sorry, somebody who's greatly academically advanced (laughs) has produced. Yeah. But a thesis really is just a statement, a proposition, a challenge really. And this was Luther's thought. He didn't want to start an argument. 
He didn't want to divide the church. He wanted a discussion. And the 95 theses were a list of 95 points that he believed needed discussing. He deliberately wrote his theses in Latin, not in German, because he really didn't want everybody to get confused and blown apart by this. This was a challenge to the thinking people. Those who were educated, those who thought in Latin, spoke in Latin, and were able to digest this. He wanted a discussion. But God had other ideas. Historically, the Christian church has come to regard the 31st of October, 1517, as the start date of what's become known as the Protestant Reformation. That's a bit unfair. Luther wasn't trying to start a rebellion. He wasn't trying to even start a reformation. Really, he didn't even know who Jesus was properly at this stage. There are good reasons to say that Luther wasn't even a Christian at this point, but he was somebody who was beginning to see that there were things that were wrong with the church that had to be addressed. He wanted things to improve. At that point in history, most people had no real idea of the Bible as we know it. What Bible they did hear, they would hear on a Sunday morning when they went to church. And it would just be the little bits of the Bible that the people in the church chose to read to them. And it would be in Latin, which was useless because nobody spoke Latin. And what they relied on for their spiritual life depended on myths, legends, stories, things they were told. At this point in time, there were a number of beliefs in the Christian church that we would probably find strange. For instance, when you and I sin, do you think about temporal sins and eternal sins? Do you think about the fact that some sins might have to be paid for now and the rest would be paid for eternity? I would suspect not. Some of you might. Again, it very much would depend on your background for this. But at this point in the 16th century, this was a very real situation because they believed that your eternal sins, the sins which you had no choice about, what we might refer to as original sin, Jesus had dealt with that at Calvary. But it's what you did this morning. That is a temporal sin. You have to pay for that. You have to deal with that. And as a result, they had this concept of purgatory whereby when you died, you went to this other place not heaven, not hell, just this other place where you had to pay with time for what had happened. Purgatory, it's not in the Bible. But because people didn't know the Bible, they had come to understand this as a good way of thinking about things. And it makes sense. I mean, to you and me, we do something wrong. We, we want to make right. It's natural. And so in the 16th century, it was natural for people to think, I have done something wrong. I need to pay for it. I need to make that effort. I need to find a way of paying it back. The problem is that this doctrine quickly gets out of control because the amount of time that you have to spend in purgatory can become quite huge. And then there was another problem. The version of the Bible that did exist, that Latin Vulgate version, had one translation that we might not fully agree with. You see, when we talk about needing to repent, to repent for our sins, they, by virtue of one miscalculate, mis mistranslation, read that in order to be forgiven, you needed to carry out acts of penance. To repent, to carry out acts of penance. You can see they're not far off linguistically, but the concept grew into we must do acts of penance. And penance became a whole thing. Things that you had to do to earn your time out of purgatory. Things like praying, things like giving in the offering, things like fasting, things like going on pilgrimages, all good things which as Christians are useful to us. But they had this concept of we need to do it. Never mind if that was the official church philosophy. Never mind if that was actually what Scripture said. For the average guys like you and me, if you don't know any better, you'll believe what you 
come to believe. Now, the church had a lot of corruption in it. Society had a lot of corruption in it. And like every society, there were rich people and there were poor people. So one of your big pilgrimages at this sort of point in history was when people would go from Central and Northern Europe through to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem had been taken by the Mohammedans, what we today call Islam. And you go and you have a crusade. Firstly, to go and see the holy sites, pilgrimage, tick, a couple of thousand years off purgatory. And secondly, take back Jerusalem for God. Big tick. Some more thousand years off purgatory. But not everybody could go, could they? Just like into church today, not everybody can go and do mission work. So we, we, we pay for other people to go and do mission work. So then you pay for other people to go to the crusades. And the church goes, okay, we'll look after your money. And so it began a very dangerous situation where people began, rather than to do acts of penance, to pay for other people to do acts of penance for them. You kill somebody, you pay for a monk to spend the rest of his life praying for your soul and for the soul of the person you killed. And money, 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 as the Bible tells us, the love of money the root of all sorts of evil. I did mention that people were coming to see Frederick the Wise's relics and paying to do so. This is what was known as purchasing indulgences. You see, you'd come and you'd look at these relics, you'd say, what a nice finger bone from Elijah. Or what a nice splinter from the cross. Incidentally, in Wittenberg, there were seven fragments of the manger from Bethlehem. They said, no, I don't choose to believe it. But that was the sort of thing. In case you come, you'd pay to see these because not only are they, wow, great tourist things, but you're purchasing the indulgence. You're purchasing that time out, that forgiveness value. Frederick the Wise was not too bad. He only opened up his treasury once a year. But in the wider church throughout Europe, there were bigger problems. There was political intrigue, whereby certain princes wanted to be more powerful, and they couldn't afford to get more powerful without actually becoming the archbishop of a particular region. And they couldn't do that without paying that for that privilege. And they couldn't officially pay for that because they'd be buying their own way into office. So they therefore had to set up an arrangement with the bank so as to get the money. Politics hasn't changed. In this particular case, the Fuga Bank went and spoke to Rome. Rome said, okay, fine, we can arrange for you to finance this loan on the condition that half, half, half the proceeds go to Rome and half the proceeds go to buying the archbishopric. Next stage, we employ a monk to go and do the salesman. And along comes a man who's gone down in history with great infamy known as Tetzel, because Tetzel didn't just sell indulgences once a year. That was his full-time job. He is a monk. He should be a man of God. He is a salesman, selling pieces of paper, saying that your time in purgatory can be reduced. Tetzel is famous for that one saying, when a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. It's horrid. But it makes sense if you don't know anymore. It makes sense if you don't realize that by grace we are saved. Throughout the period, you've got what a group called themselves the mendicant friars who traveled throughout Europe, traveling, preaching, mobile evangelists who had never seen or read the Bible. They would tell stories from Greek and Roman mythology. They had good stories, they had the ability to tell good stories, and they had a pile of indulgences to sell. This was the world that Luther came into. Luther himself didn't know what the Bible was for most of his life. He was actually at university, the University of Erfurt, the first time that he discovered a Bible. 
he was amazed. He'd only heard those little bits on a Sunday, and suddenly there's this little red Bible chained to the wall. It's too precious to let out the library. He was amazed. At that point in his, in his life, within, we're told, six to nine months, he memorized the Psalms, the Gospels, Romans, and Galatians. Just a quick thought, how many of those do you know? We'll speak in nine months and see how far we've got. He was rare because having access to that Bible in, in Erfurt gave him the chance to read it. And when he finished his, his baccalaureate, his bachelor's, de bachelor's degree, there's a three-month window in his life which we know very little about what he actually did. But when you read his later writings, it's clear that he spent that time studying. And by the time he started his master's degree, he was deeply ingrained in Scripture, which was just as well because... Now, wait for it. This is a, a, a gem. To study a master's degree in theology, they took your Bible away. Because you can't read the Bible on your own. You might get it wrong. You must only be told what the Bible says by somebody else. Church, if we ever hint that, from up here. Go outside, get a rock, and throw it at us. You must hear from God yourself. Must. Luther had access to a Bible. Luther could read Latin. Luther was a pretty sharp cookie. He was hugely privileged. For the common people, no chance. But by 1517, as a result of his time reading the Bible and studying, as well as doing his other monastic duties as an Augustinian monk and as a lecturer in the University of Wittenberg, he had come to realize that there were certain things that the Bible taught that the church didn't, and he was really concerned about the state of the church. And that was why he made that one-kilometer walk from the, the monastery up to the castle to nail those 95 theses to the door. And primarily, the main thing in those 95 theses was speaking out against this horrific practice of selling indulgences. He wanted to say, church, we need to stop and think about this. What are we doing? The Bible says, by grace you have been saved. Not by a piece of paper. Not by crawling up a set of steps on your knees and saying the Our Father on every one of them. Not by kissing the big toe of somebody who happens to be a church leader, but otherwise is just a human like the rest of us. And this is what he was challenging. He wasn't the first to speak out. Way back two centuries before, an Englishman called John Wycliffe had also spoken out severely against indulgences. That wasn't actually why he was burned. John Wycliffe was burned to death in the end because he refused to accept that when they had communion, the bread was bread. You see, the church wanted him to say that the bread had physically become the body of Jesus Christ. So he was burned because he refused to say that. I don't know what I would be prepared to be burned for. Because some of these things from 600 years on feel a little bit trivial. But Wycliffe had spoken out about 100 years after him, a guy called Jan Hus in Czechoslovakia, again, spoken out. Luther spoke out. They weren't alone. This uprising, this change in the way people were thinking was happening throughout Europe at that point in time. And again, remember that from a point of view of Christianity, to a large degree, Europe was where the church was. Yes, there were other pockets of Christianity in the, the Eastern Church. What's the day? That sort of area around Turkey. And again, into Africa, the Coptic Church, they existed. They had their own stuff going on. But what we're talking about today was very much what was going on in, in Europe at that point in time. And these individual little lights were coming on as God began to speak to his people and said, See what my word says? That's the truth. 
Luther didn't intend to break the Catholic Church into two. In the end, that's the way it worked out. And of the approximately 2 billion Christians that we have in the world at the moment, your two biggest groups are the Catholics and the Protestants, which splits out at this point in time largely from a result of this Protestant Reformation. Luther didn't want that split. He wanted to change the Catholic Church from inside. God had a different plan. God's timing was right. This was, 2017, that was 1517. 1516, the year before, was the year when Erasmus had published his Greek New Testament. Now, again, it's still Greek. It's not German, but it's more accessible, and it is published. It's not just chained away in little dark libraries. It's accessible. So anybody really who had an education, because at that point in time, educated people would learn probably Greek, but certainly logic, philosophy. And that's about it. So they'd have that bit of Greek, they were able to access the scripture. And it's at that point in time when you're getting a published, printed version of the Bible suddenly starting to appear in a language that some people can get to. God says, let's do it. And throughout the Christian church at that stage, we began to see these lights. The lights were breaking out. As I've said, many of the people died for their faith during that period. Luther was actually quite exceptional in that he was allowed to live until old age. God was doing something great. God was restoring his gospel. God was restoring the church. God was bringing back what had been given at the beginning. And what we believe today and what we would stand on as a church is founded solely on the scriptures. But what we understand of it, we have to be so thankful for what happened in the 16th and 17th centuries. Because at that point in time, God is working through these particular reformers to bring us so much of what we understand today. There's a saying which they used in Latin. Ex tenebras lux. Out of darkness, light. And from the darkness of the Middle Ages... And the little glimmerings of humanist uh, light that came through with the Renaissance, God moved and the light began to break out. Now, out of the Reformation, as I say, came many key teachings which we have come to accept and which help us to understand so much of what Scripture says. One group of these, which pretty much the whole Reformation stands on, have what have become known as the five solas, or if you're going to be strictly accurate, grammatically, the five sole. Solas is easier for me to say. Sola scriptura, solo gracia, sola fide, sola Christus, and soli deo gloria. And because you're all fluent in Latin, I need to say no more. We can all go for lunch. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. The word sola means only, or alone, or no other. It's that one thing. So basically what the Reformers were saying is that Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone is our reference point. It's not the Pope. It's not Tetzel. It's not clever mythology. Scripture alone is our reference and our final authority. And when we look in Scripture, we see sola gratia, that salvation is by grace alone. That is received through faith alone. And that faith is in Christ alone. And our salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is to the glory of God alone. The five solas of the Reformation. In Scripture alone do we find that by grace alone are we saved, as received by faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Put it another way, we are saved by grace alone. It is a free gift received by faith alone in Christ alone, and in what he has done for us. 
Our salvation is to the glory of God alone. We know this from Scripture alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one could boast. So in the next hour and a half, I'd like to go through those five points. But I will try and do it in less than that. So the scripture. Did I do that? Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. Have I gone one too far? Yeah. This was key to the Reformation. The rediscovery of the Bible, which came, and from that, the rediscovery of the Gospel. Because, you see, if you don't know what the Bible says, then how can you actually follow what the Bible says? The Bible is the Word of God. Now, these two verses in Jude show us something very interesting. See, we're thinking about 500 years ago with the Reformation. Jude, 2,000 years ago, found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To the saints. For even at that time, certain people had crept into the church unnoticed. Ungodly people who were perverting the grace of God. They were changing it. They were making it into something for themselves. And as a result, they were denying the lordship of our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a new problem. It wasn't new in Luther's time. It's certainly not new today. But it exists. And Jude's church charge to the church and Luther's challenge to the church taken up by all the other guys the same. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. God didn't give us the Bible and then go and give us another one. He gave us the Bible once for all. The Word of God is unchanging. 2,000 years have gone by since the Bible was given to us in its complete form, but it hasn't changed. Once for all. Beware of those who have crept in unnoticed. Beware of the godless people who, incredibly clever people, thoughtful people, intelligent people, who have perverted the grace of God. In every generation, they're there. We need to be aware of them. This is why, because they're there, this is why we must contend for the faith. The Bible is... Our only reference. It's our only reference point. It's our only definitive authority. Church leaders are human. They get things wrong. Church leaders are not above the Bible. Philosophers are not above the Bible. Theologians are not above the Bible. Governments are not above the Bible. Personal preference is not above the Bible. We are all subject to the Bible, and the Bible is eternal. The Bible is our source for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Our society has changed. The way we understand so many things has changed. The inherent truth of Scripture has not Okay, maybe... Most of it hasn't. Maybe there are bits of the Bible that are a little bit out of date. Maybe there's, you know that bit. I don't, I don't go specifically, but you know that bit? Yeah. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Even that bit about Noah's fishing trip, Jonah's fishing trip, sorry. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that you and I may be complete and equipped for every work. All Scripture. God didn't breathe out Scripture and say, this is for the first century, but then later you're going to learn something different. 
There are differences in understanding. There are differences of interpretation. I appreciate that. And there are many issues in the, which people would say, that's what I believe. Other people say, well, actually not. There are open-handed issues which really, they don't impact on the gospel. But the core message of Scripture is unchanged and is complete and will remain so. And it's important for us to keep coming back to this. I think that part of what we have seen in the church in this year is because we as a community have been coming back to Scripture. Many of us are doing Purple Book, which disciplines us to look at what Scripture says. Many of us have done a lot better this year in reading the Bible on a regular basis, which has grown us all individually. And that makes a difference. But our final authority is the Bible alone. Commentaries, sermons, discussions, the church leadership, theologians, they're all very useful things. But they all come under the authority of the Bible. The Bible tells us that we are saved by grace. Through faith in Christ, to the glory of God. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Romans 3, we read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are, f- are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. We are justified freely by his grace. It is a free gift. It is given to us undeservingly. It's free. It cannot be earned. It cannot be purchased. It cannot be paid for. It's been given, not earned. By grace, you have been saved. God, rich in mercy, with great love for us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Do you know anybody who believes that when something's going wrong in their life, they need to go and speak to their church leader specifically. Because only the church leader can actually say the right prayers. Do you know anybody who might not actually be paying their rent and their Zessa bill, but they are buying stickers for their car and armbands to go around their arms because that is what their church leader requires of them? Do you know anybody who is putting in the extra effort, time, money, commitment, because otherwise God's going to be cross with them. Do any of you come to church today because you know you have to and you're scared? You cannot earn God's forgiveness. By grace, you have been saved. Not by your bumper sticker, or by the man of God's handkerchief, or by your all-night prayer meetings, which are good. Handkerchiefs, maybe not as good, but prayer is a good thing. By grace, you have been saved. It's all about grace. We are saved by grace alone. Nothing we can do about it. What we do is a result of grace. It doesn't cause it. What we do doesn't save us. It just proves our salvation. The fact that you choose on a Sunday morning to come in here and say, God, times are tough. God, I cannot remember what cash looks like. But I love you. I'm grateful to you. Here is my contribution to the running of your body. 
that is not going to get you into heaven. But because he has saved you out of gratitude, that is why you tithe. It's because you see what God has done that you want to give more to him. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as we read in the scripture alone. Romans 3, 27 and 28. So what, what about boasting? Well, it is excluded. For, well, under what sort of law is it excluded? Is it by the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You do what's right. Good thing. You come to service on Sunday. You come to prayers Wednesday night, Sunday morning. Good thing. You do your purple book. Good thing. You pray for the sick. Good thing. You bring food for the, the food bank and the clothes bank. Good thing. We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The works of the law are not the issue. Galatians 2, we know that a person is not justified by doing the right thing, but they are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. We believe in order to be justified by faith and not by what we do. Now, this is not a license to do whatever we like, obviously, because as we believe in him and we see his glory and his majesty, we want to do better. That's natural. But those works of the law do not save us because the works of the law and by the works of the law, no one will be justified. None of us. Romans 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justified by faith. See, this is so lovely. It's not a case of I am saved because Mr. Tetzel gave me a piece of paper. I am justified by faith. Because I believe, because I put my trust in God, I don't have to trust some man to get it right. I can trust in God. We receive the grace of salvation through faith alone. I let go of my self-reliance. I stop trying to work it out. I stop trying to say, I'm working hard enough. I can trust myself to do well enough. And instead, I trust in God. I put my faith in God because he is my Lord and my God. Suddenly, it makes more sense, doesn't it? Because we're starting to put our faith in something that's big enough to put our faith in. I know me well enough to know that I'm not able to rely on myself. But by grace are you saved through faith and the one who is reliable. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. With his blood, not with the blood of goats and calves, Jesus entered into the holy place once and for all and secured our redemption forever. It's all about him. He did it. He's not asking you to do X, Y, Z so that you can be saved. He did it already once for all. It's done. What happened at Calvary was a one-off event. You do not have to earn your salvation. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by anything you can do. No man is justified by their works. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I live by faith, not in myself, not in my church, not in my structure, not in the hopes I have for anything around me, but in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ died. And if I am going to say that I can earn my salvation by doing stuff, I'm saying, I'm okay, I can do it. Jesus died for nothing. The Son of God, God himself made man, does not die for nothing. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. Our faith must be in Christ alone. We cannot. KP Men, thank you for one of the busiest and unreadable volumes of messages in one week. But we cannot 
hope to put our faith in humans, political or otherwise. Our faith must be in Christ alone, not in the church, not in the leaders, not in theology, history, reason, experience, not in myself, in Christ alone. The only way we're going to get through. For salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But why? Why did he save us? Is it just because he knew we would like to be saved? Is it just because he thought, well, actually, yeah, they, they have actually haven't been too bad. I'd, I'd better send Jesus down to earth because they need saving and it's the right thing to do. God's bigger than that. God's bigger than do the right thing. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. In him we have an obtained an inheritance which has been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, to accept him by faith alone, might be what? Might be good little Christian people who work hard? No, why, that we might be to the praise of his glory. This is his reason. This is his reason so that we could be those who give praise to his glory. This is his purpose, is to create worshipers, to create those who give him glory. It's all about his glory. God chose the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the despised and the lost things to destroy the world's views generally so that no human can boast. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, righteousness and sanctification redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not a case of, I come to church because I'm a good person. And I'm proud of that. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because your salvation is to the glory of God, not to the glory of you. You did nothing to earn it. You have no right to it. He gave it to you as a gift. And it's all to his glory. This is the only bit of Old Testament you're going to see today. But Isaiah makes it clear that in the end, it all comes down to one thing. Not how many of us get to heaven, but the Lord alone will be exalted. Why do we evangelize? Why do we ask people to come to him? Why do we ask people to accept this free gift of grace? Because we want him to be exalted. Yes, we want our friends to come to him. But it's not about them any more than it's about us. It's about his glory. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgment. How unscrutable are his ways for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Sola Dei Gloria. I don't know how many of you were educated by the Jesuits or currently work for the Jesuits, but... You will have been indoctrinated, sorry, um, schooled in putting AMDG on your various pieces of paper. Ad majora dei gloria. To the greater glory of God. I am not saying that you need to rebel against the Jesuits. I'm saying set your standards higher. Soli dei gloria. For the glory of God alone. Not just for more of it, for all of it. Musical people, go grab a, yeah, go grab Google. It's probably easiest. And look for one of the manuscripts written by Johann Sebastian Bach. Or George Handel, come to think of that. Look down the bottom corner. Any of Bach's manuscripts. Bottom left-hand corner, JSB, Johann Sebastian Bach. Bottom right-hand corner, SDG, Sola Dei Gloria. Everything he wrote, he was telling himself, this must be solely for the glory of God. They got it. They understood. That is what salvation's for. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. 
Whatever he's given you, whatever your talents, whatever your way you're working, however you're living your life, it must be to the glory of God. And that's hard because there are things about the way God does things that we don't necessarily like. God does things that are unfair. God does things that just, we wouldn't do them that way. Life's not fair. People suffer. There is injustice. There is greed. There is corruption. It is not fair that many people will go to hell unsaved. That is not fair. It's not about me. It's not about what I think is fair. As hard and as horrid as it is, it's the greater glory of God. It's solely to the glory of God. Our salvation was given to us that he would receive glory. And our reason for being Christians is solely that he would receive glory. Folks, weep for the lost. To not have Christ is hugely horrid. But don't blame God. He's working it out solely for his glory. We might understand. We might not have a clue what's going on, but we do know that it's all about him. And that by grace, we are saved. There's only one purpose in our salvation. To glorify him. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as we read in the scripture alone. It's simple. We've covered a lot of scripture today. I've asked the guys to make sure this PowerPoint does go up online as soon as everything else is ready to go up because, yeah, you're allowed to have missed a few on the long way. That's quite okay. But what does it mean? What does it mean to you and me to remember that by grace you have been saved through faith? It's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one can boast. For we his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that Christ prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does it mean? What does it mean to you? It means that however good you are, means whatever you have done, you do not deserve your salvation. You are, with all due respect, because I am too, a horrible person. Salvation is not by you. It's by him alone. You instinctively want to do acts of penance. You instinctively want to work things out because you don't like doing things wrong. It feels nasty. It feels bad. You want to pay, but you can't. You can't pay. He did it all. It's such a good thing to stop and say, you paid your life on that cross. Freely you gave your life for us, surrendered your life upon that cross. Great the love. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve that love. But you can have it. By grace you are saved. It is a free gift. He offers it to you and like any gift, you've got to take it. That's it. He offers you grace to be received through faith in Christ. He offers you this chance to let go of yourself and say, self, you are not God. God is God. And I am going to live sola dei gloria, for the glory of God alone. Stop being king in your life. Fall before him and accept him as Lord and God. Some of us have been in church for way too long and still have tried to be our own lords and gods. 
not by what you've done. If you think you've been a Christian for decades or you think you've never actually accepted that grace, it's the same thing. By grace, today you can be saved. Today you can put your faith in Christ alone. Today you can begin to really live the glory of God alone. Oh, there's nothing we can do to thank you. Nothing we can do to come close to just touching the immensity of the gift you've given us. But you did. We are grateful. Lord, we thank you for history. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us such opportunity to learn from what you've already done in the past and to warn us with other people's mistakes. Lord, we come to you today and recognize that you have told us very clearly in your word that the wages of sin is death. We need your salvation. Thank you for grace. Thank you, Lord, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We give you glory alone, as we read it in your scripture. Go with us, Lord. Make us strong in you. There's no chance of us being worthy of your love, Lord. But help us to grow, that we may become better and better at giving you glory. Amen. Thanks, Mike. You have been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.